Welcome, friends. It's time for another Tokenomics, and we've got, as always, some very dramatic news to talk about this week. So this week, we've got Anton Bachman, Principal at Play Ventures. Hello, hello. Special guest, Kenrick, a very Finnish last name I will not try and pronounce, a general partner at Play Future Fund. Kenrick, what is your last name? It's the guy Groningen, and it's it's Dutch, but uh, close, close enough. Dutch, my fat American tongue can't even come close to saying it right. Uh, and then we've got uh, myself, Ethan Levy, executive producer of Legendary Heroes Unchained at Network. Uh, today, we're going to hear talk about and explain the story I'm sure you've all read plenty about, the dramatic collapse of the Terra ecosystem, all that and more on today's Tokenomics. Excited about NFTs in the metaverse? Ready to be part of the future of gaming? Recur is looking for talented producers, product managers, game designers, economy designers, and engineers. Recur is building branded NFT collectibles and games with top IP, including College Sports, Paramount, Star Trek, Nickelodeon, Sanrio, and more, using its best-in-the-industry technology platform. Recur's platform streamlines the NFT collecting experience. No crypto or third-party wallets required. Simply buy an NFT with your credit card or Apple Pay. And Recur's robust gamification system creates infinite collecting and gameplay possibilities from which to make compelling play and earn experiences. Recur is backed by some of the biggest names in crypto and NFTs, including billionaire Stephen Cohn, Gary Vee, and Gemini, among others. Join us now and get ready to ride a rocket ship. Let's fucking go. All right, let's uh, start since, Kenrick, since you're a new voice on the podcast, could you begin by uh, introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Ethan. Um, yeah, I'm Kenrick. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm Dutch originally, but been in Singapore for the past 11 years. Used to work at a number of startups here, primarily on the digital marketing side, including the UA in the gaming space. I used to work with Henrik, one of the founding partners of Play at his gaming startup back, back in the day. Uh, non-stop games before we got acquired by King and then later started a small crypto venture fund in Singapore that was called Lunex um, as part of uh, another VC here. Uh, we invested in crypto financial infrastructure, so wallets, KYC, AML, custodians, exchanges, DeFi protocols, um, and Terra was one of our investments at the time as well. Uh, so we set that up in 2017, 2018. Um, and last year, rejoined Henrik and the partners and Anton at Play to raise the new funds that we just launched at the end of last year, which is the Play Future Fund. Uh, so that's the fund that Anton and myself are running, investing in all things Web3 crypto gaming, uh, both the studios as well as the infrastructure play. So we've done a number of studios, we've done some guilds, we've done borrowing and lending protocols, NFT marketplaces uh, across the whole stack, basically. So that's what we're currently doing. Got it. Well, thanks for coming on. And as kind of an early investor in Terra, I thought you'd be a, a perfect voice to help us explain what's happened and, and how to think about it. So um, let me let me set the stage. Uh, if you're listening, you've likely seen the headlines about the collapse of token value of Luna and UST, the two primary tokens in the Terra ecosystem. Um, from their website, Terra is a public blockchain protocol deploying a suite of algorithmic decentralized stablecoins, which underpin a thriving ecosystem that brings DeFi to the masses. So um, 
if I understand it correctly, Terra was an L1 chain and it had two uh, tokens, Luna and UST. Uh, UST is marketed as a stable coin and it was an algorithmic stable coin, which meant they weren't saying for every um, uh, UST we issue, there's a $1 USD worth of gold in a bank vault. And if you redeem your UST, you can always get that dollar back. It wasn't backed by um, fiat assets at any point. It was backed by an algorithm. And the claim was that uh, UST would stay pegged to a dollar and Luna would be a store of value and they could sell, if I understand correctly, when to, to keep that uh, price pegged, they could always sell Luna uh, in order to, to uh, increase, uh, buy and increase the price of UST, or they could um, use their uh, holdings from the Luna Guard Foundation, which owned billions in Bitcoin, to prop up that price. Um, so the idea was that uh, they would they would keep UST pegged uh, using uh, um, algorithms and the backing of other tokens. And then another uh, important part of this ecosystem was the Anchor Protocol, which was a staking protocol, which I believe was uh, providing 20% uh, return on staked. Do you guys know, was it US, staked UST, staked Luna, or both? I, I actually forgot USD, to write that down. Yeah, but maybe, maybe I'll run through the background of, of yeah. Terra and gives you a clearer picture of how we kind of arrived at this point. So basically, yeah. when I started in 2018, um, the original idea and vision was very much to power real-world payments or e-commerce payments. So they were looking to do integrations with Carousel, which is a, uh, an online marketplace here in, in Singapore. Uh, they had a Chai payments app in Korea. Uh, and so the idea was really to facilitate the transfer of value um, with fiat, like on their network. So somebody makes a payment and it transfers and uh, gets gets paid. So the, the, the biggest stablecoin in the beginning was actually KRT, the Korean one. Um, and um, later they had a couple of other ones, MNT and UST was only came later. But basically the, the way that it works is very simple. Um, the dollar that is USD uh, is basically backed by the equity value of the Luna network. So you could always redeem uh, up until very recently, you could <laughs> always redeem one USD for $1. And the way that mechanism works is um, basically you redeem one USD uh, and the protocol mints an additional Luna or number of Lunas and sells that into the market. Uh, towards the value of $1. So I think at the end, the total outstanding supply of UST was 19 billion US dollars and the total network value or the market cap, if you like, of Luna was $40 billion. So you would think, you know, like if you just look at it that way, that UST was backed by the network value, but obviously market cap is not the same as like, you can't sell $40 billion on that market and then have, you know, all those dollars doesn't work, work like that. There's slippage. Um, there's just not enough demand to, to prop that up. So when it started off, um, it made sense. They used this seniorage basically to give discounts to the, to the, uh, to the merchants or to the end consumer purchasing stuff from the merchants. 
Uh, and Synergy is basically the same way that uh, our fiat system works in that um, money is basically created out of thin air, but then in the fiat system, there's demand for that money for through paying taxes. You need to uh, pay your oil, oil bills in, in US dollars. Uh, the government has a monopoly on violence. Basically, you have to use this coin uh, in our payment system. But for USD, that's obviously not the case. So I think over time, um, things got a little bit out of hand because you can do this in smaller quantities and doses. So if you have a $40 billion market cap and you issue one, two, three, four, five billion of UST on top of that, the market could absorb that, right? Like if you sell a billion into a 40 billion market cap, and I don't know what the exact ratio is, what works or what stops working at some point. But the point is that uh, humans being humans, uh, obviously get a little bit too greedy, too far ahead of themselves um, and start to issue too much money. And then it becomes an unsustainable uh, value proposition, basically. So that's what happens over time. Uh, and basically, Anchor was just used to, to lock UST in the protocol. Um, very successful until people started withdrawing it. And this is what happened, basically. Right. Uh, so and just and just maybe adding to that, a kind of maybe a quick taxonomy on on the main models for stable coins. So so we have we have the algorithmic one, uh, as, as Kendrick was was describing. So there is no collateral uh, behind it. It's, it's mainly mainly based on on incentives keeping it together and then you have then you have currencies like like tether or usdt that that are uh, fiat backed and have so for each usdt there's a there's a us dollar somewhere in a bank account uh and um and then a bit a bit, a, a bit in the same um, same league you have uh, also the crypto backed stable coins so so maker and die being an example where People over collateralize, they lock in a certain amount of ether, for example, and then they receive a certain amount of stable coin. And then that over collateralization aims to aims to keep keep the price steady. And then the third one here here. And, and one other one other way to think about this is they all have different risk trade-offs. So the risk trade-off for UST was pretty clear now. The risk trade-off for USDT is that it's being run by an offshore organization, uh, Tether, which is semi-audited and we think there's probably some collateral there, but we don't know exactly what it is or how much it is. Right. The, uh, the, the trade-off uh, for, trade for USDC is very much that the US government could freeze your money because it's controlled by Circle Financial, which sits in the US. So you have regulatory risk on that one. Uh, and then DAI, basically, which is backed by Ether or other assets in that protocol. You have smart contract and protocol risk from the maker protocol. So they're all different and they have different risk parameters and trade-offs. I think USDC is the safest, followed by USDT. Um, but yeah, they're all slightly different. Yeah. So when you originally invested in Terra, this wasn't a project or a protocol that was generated specifically for the facilitation of game economies. That's something that came as one of the uh, uh, uses of the network over time. Originally, it sounds like uh, facilitating the buying and selling of goods through the use, the, the generation of these uh, stable digital currencies. That was the purpose of Terra originally. Yeah, exactly. That's why they started with this, this, the Chai payment app in Korea. They made a push for like online platforms to use these payment rails. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think, and I, 
I think what happened over time is that it just became a lot easier to offer stable coins within DeFi because that's growing a lot faster. You don't need to do a lot of work to integrate your solution with real world businesses. Mm -hmm. um, you can just basically print more money if you like and use it in these anchor protocols or other DeFi uh, kind of solutions. And I think that's what got the better of them in the end. Uh, the idea itself could potentially still have worked, but again, I think it's, it just got too greedy. Yeah. All right. So, you know, 30 days ago, the, the price of Luna was $81.45. Now it's uh, less than two ten thousandths of a cent. And UST, which was a dollar uh, uh, 30 days ago uh, at the start of the recording, was 8.4 uh, cents, essentially. Um, and I know that it's not completely known yet uh, what happened or kind of what uh, caused the attack. But like at a, at a high level, I, I, the best I can understand it is that UST, the stable coin, became unpegged from a dollar. And that so somebody did something that like knocked it off a dollar and then people panicked and that and started selling off uh, both Luna and UST and panic caused more panic and it got into a death spiral. And yeah. uh, along the way, the, the Luna Foundation Guard sold or swapped billions of, of dollars worth of Bitcoin to try and keep that UST uh, price pegged at a dollar and that effort failed and they've basically spent or, or gotten gotten rid of you know I, it was like billions of dollars of uh of bitcoin is that is that an accurate description am i you know is like bank run the right metaphor with which to think about this how, how would you guys uh explain the the collapse and value of these two tokens yeah, I think so. I think it was a, a combination of like almost like a perfect storm that came together. It was not a single issue. Um, there were a number uh, of, of different ones. Obviously, people kind of knew this, that there was always a risk. Um, mm. And without commenting whether this was a, specifically an attack or just an unfortunate kind of uh, combining of circumstances, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, and it, it, almost, it doesn't matter for the outcome. Right. For the outcome, it doesn't really matter, but it, it happened when um, the, there's, a, there's a big DeFi protocol called Curve on which uh, stablecoin swaps happen and there's a lot of liquidity on there. Um, and at some point last week, somebody removed a whole bunch of liquidity from the pool where you can swap your US, uh, UST. Um, mm -hmm. That caused the pack to go off a little bit. Um, with that, you get more people noticing this. You get a few more people trying to exit it. Um, with that, you get Luna printing basically, right? Because that's the redemption mechanism, um, which then tanks the Luna price. And this is all in a macro environment where crypto prices are already going down. So the collateral that's part of the Luna Foundation, uh, which was Bitcoin Avalanche, uh, a couple of other tokens, was BNB, I think, the, yeah, was also going down at the same point. And you get to a point where there's enough people who lose trust and because of the mechanism, and I think they made one crucial mistake, actually, the UST was going off pack already 
And what they should have done is kind of limit the redemption because hmm. uh, I think there was a cap on total UST redemption per day. And instead of saying, we're going to limit this and slow the redemption over time, they doubled down on it and said, like, we need to get back to the pack faster, which basically hyperinflated Luna. Uh, so many tokens uh, were printed that the order books entirely disappeared. So you couldn't sell Luna anymore because the, the, there was no bid like on FTX. Mm -hmm. the, the entire market just went to the smallest tick, which is like 0.001 cent or whatever. And that's where all the asks were sitting. You cannot place a bid at zero dollars, right? Like, yeah, there's no, there's no mechanism for that. So that you can't mm -hmm. sell the Luna anymore. Pack breaks, everything breaks, hyperinflates, and yeah. Um, that's but essentially, essentially a bit similar to a bank run where um, kind of customers lose faith that the bank is going to remain solvent. Uh, and then everybody kind of speeds up to, to, to withdraw their assets from the bank at the same time, which then eventually causes the collapse. Now I saw, I read a couple of working theories on kind of how, how this one was set up. Um, I think, um, some of them were aligned around this, this idea of this attacker that, that reacted to, so, uh, to, to, to Luna's, Luna's or the foundations. Uh, intends to to purchase more Bitcoin, as they as they announced that in in March, uh, and then this attacker went on to to borrow a large large quantity of Bitcoin that they then started selling uh, against against Luna's buy orders, uh, and um, then then later on, while while this kind of so they were they were switching liquidity from one of the curb pools uh, to another. Uh, and that's when when they kind of saw the window of opportunity of of, of uh, attacking it when it was when it was vulnerable, and that that was one of the kind of moments where where the death spiraled and started. And then the rest basically was panicking, as as Kendrick mentioned. Yeah, I think you know the thing I I want to say is like my I mean my hearts go out to the people who lost their life savings, their stories, and I don't know if they're confirmed or not of people losing their life savings of people, uh, uh, committing suicide and this, this causing, you know, the majority or many of the losses are just paper losses, right. Or losses among, um, investor class, but part of the danger, uh, potential financial financial danger of crypto is that it's extremely volatile. It's extremely risky. And I think that a lot of people are not used to um, thinking about money or even stocks in this way. Like I think, especially if you're listening to the if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably in a in a country with fairly stable currency value, and you don't think about that that currency is uh, propped up only by faith. That like money is a technology that humans use to aid in commerce, but it's not a, it's not a real thing. And, uh, cryptocurrency is no different. And if anything, it's so early and experimental, like this, this sort of stuff keeps happening and, and it'll happen for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is, this is not financial advice, but like when I make an investment, generally I'm investing, you know, like when I bought into the initial iron source listing after it's back, right? Part of my brain goes, well, 
this is a couple hundred dollars and in 30 years it might be worth nothing and it might be worth a lot more. And I think it's more likely than not that it'll be worth a lot more over time. And so that's why I'm willing to make this bet and I'm willing to lose this money completely. And I think a lot of the hype and discourse, especially around cryptocurrency, like completely ignores these ideas of the volatility and the riskiness of the bets and that you should never invest money that you're not willing to completely lose um, due to the riskiness of it. I, I think that, you know, both between governments providing currency stability and then business stability in times of crisis, people are not used to the um, true uh, implications of capitalism, that it's almost evolutionary and that things are bound bound to fail. Um, so uh, I guess uh, my point is I'm, I really empathize for anybody who experienced real and, and painful losses as a result of this unwinding. And, you know, as always do, do your own research, make the choices that are right for you, um, based on your personal, uh, risk profile. Um, so, you know, given that, like, uh, in, in hindsight, what are the, it's, it seems like there were some obvious mistakes along the way, or there were some mistakes along the way, right? Not, not spotting that this collapse was happening and taking more, uh, preventative measures. Um, do you feel like that was, is the decentralization of, th of Terra or similar networks, does that fight against the ability to take, uh, action in time of crisis? Um, I think with Terra, it's a very specific kind of example in the way that it, that it was designed, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of dual dual token system. Most other networks do not uh, do not have this. Um, Bitcoin is a is a hard asset. ETH is a hard asset. Like uh, the protocol itself doesn't have this redemption or issuing mm. mechanism of, of two assets. So uh, I think this was very specific to. Uh, to Terra, unfortunately, yes. Got it. I think something they they could have, uh, or something that I think uh, I felt they get a lot, they got a lot of criticism for uh, after these events started unfolding uh, and and there started being hysteria, is that some of these accounts on, on Twitter, like the founder as well as the uh, the foundation guard, uh, went relatively silent. Uh, weren't providing too many updates on kind of where 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 things are going in the war room mm -hmm. uh, and uh, taking preventive measures, what's happening with the LFG. And then it was um, just announced or clear a couple of days later that the that the LFG reserve was empty or they were they, they were all being used already. Right. Uh, and um, was led to obviously a lot of just like free speculation about not knowing what, what's going on in within the core team. Uh, behind uh behind the project got it some more transparency could have um helped with the faith aspect of it and along with what you said previously about um slowing probably down at the least printing. as a part of the probably at least as part of the damage control mm -hmm. kind of post post as well because now now the founder is, is again participating in the discourse but is not in a very good light uh and um not getting too much, not getting too much love at the moment. 
uh, some events are just. I, I, I guess my, I guess my takeaway is. Uh, I guess my takeaway is still if you put humans in charge of these systems, uh, at one point or another, they're going to mess it up. Uh, you want to have very robust systems. I, I see it really as an analogy to our kind of fiat system, which is also not sustainable. Um, but again, because governments are behind it, we can draw this out over much longer periods of time. Um, but it's it's by no means different. And I think this is uh, some of the arguments that a lot of the, uh, the crypto bros, as you guys uh, love to refer uh, to them, is, are making is that you need a monetary system that's actually backed by a hard asset or by an asset, you know, that's not being controlled by humans like the US dollar or UST was. Um, but whether that's on Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, it just has a fixed supply and that's transparent and that's issued by the protocol. Uh, and there's no, you know, like ambiguity, um, difficult word for me. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, ambiguity. Ambiguity. Yeah, that one. <laughs> See, now you go wrong as well. <laughs> um, in, in the issuance of that, it's very fixed. Like we know what's what's there. Mm -hmm. Take humans out of the equation, I think built more robust systems over time. Uh, and again, it was human error here uh, at the end and not kind of the protocol worked flawlessly as designed. Uh, it was it just had a number of design flaws. Yeah, got it. So Kenrick, you, you were an early investor in Terra. What originally um, drew you to the this project and this protocol? Yeah, I think at the time in, in 2018, um, there was not a lot of real world adoption of crypto itself, right? There was, uh, we just had like the, the ICO phase and kind of real early stuff, but people weren't really using it in, in the real world. And this was one of the kind of pitch propositions of Terra is that they were going to integrate with e-commerce players and they're going to make online payments easier and better and you get discounts for for users and stuff like that so i think that's that's a valuable uh kind of goal that they that they had in mind um and a lot of stuff was experimental at the time and their model worked but again we actually exited this position early 2021 when we saw kind of oh, wow. usd issuance going uh, going slightly exponential, um, and it, it just diverged from the original thesis that the company mm. had or the protocol had. Uh, and I think that's one of the interesting parts of, of tokens or, um, yeah, protocols is that you can change your mind over time. If it diverges from what it originally set out to do, you can actually sell your investment. Right. Uh, if you had had a pure stock investment and there was no public market and no purchasers, you would have been uh, probably wiped out. I mean, seems yeah. like that's how history is going in terms of this investment. But you as a, if I'm understanding right, as an investor, you said, hey, I invested in this with a specific uh, use case and theory and, and risk profile and the behaviors that are taking are getting too risky for me. They're like leaning into what seems like a, a flaw in the system. So I'm going to take my wins now. Right. And even if yeah, you didn't take your wins at the peak, right at 120 or whatever it was, uh, you probably made a really healthy profit and um, removed that risk 
right? For for you guys personally. Yeah, I, I, of, of course, that's a little bit sour in in hindsight to 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 say. Um, and for for the past year, I felt pretty much like an idiot because <laughs> the price still went up ten x after after we sold. Right. Um, but the the point I'm trying to make here is that the liquidity in some of these uh, protocols and tokens just makes for very interesting markets because you have higher investor turnover. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can change your view over time uh, as you see fit, which is very different, right, from traditional venture funds where you're just locked up in your equity for, for 10 years or until there is some kind of exit. Uh, you can be much more dynamic with uh, with token projects. Yeah. You know, I have a... So on the, on the game I'm working on right now, um, one of the conversations, one of the many conversations we're having right now is about staking. Um, and my personal opinion, um, when I look at it is that within the realm of, uh, specifically of, of game economies, um, staking to me feels like pure, um, uh, financial engineering or pure manipulation, right? Like when someone stakes tokens, they say, I'm going to not spend my tokens for a set period of time. And you then give them more tokens. And this, uh, provides utility, uh, in a world where there isn't a game yet. Right. Or there's nothing else to do. What can you do with your tokens? Well, you can lock them away to artificially constrain the supply to increase the value of them. Um, and so my, Again, my personal theory is that uh, in terms of game utility, we don't require this form of staking um, because you should launch a token alongside a game that it can clearly be used in, and that provides the utility for it. And if people are um, uh, acquiring the token, it should be for, for in-game use or to sell to people who have true in-game use. So, you know, I, I kind of view... Uh, uh, staking is, is pretty risky and kind of financial engineering or, or covering up for laugh, lack of product and use case. Um, do you guys, what's your response to that uh, position? Do you feel like that's warranted? Um, was staking a critical flaw here? Um, is staking, you know, kind of what are your, what are your opinions on staking? And do you think uh, that that I don't. I don't think you described staking. They, they just took the word staking and applied it to just locking up your tokens. The idea uh -huh. of staking is that you also put something at risk. Right. So that's why it's proof of stake, right? So if you are a malicious actor or you don't validate the chain, you might get slashed on your stake. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're actually putting economic value up to secure the network. And if you don't do a good job, you get slashed and you lose some of that value. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the way that some. Uh, others have implemented it. It's just, yeah, you just lock up your tokens and we give you a yield for that. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's exactly. mostly, and that's, I think, quite typical of what we've seen in the gaming projects uh, for quite some time is that, and as Kendrick mentioned, usually he talked about a staking, but it's it's more or less a lockup program, some kind of a lockup program promising more future rewards and usually tied to if you lock them up now, you'll get bigger rewards in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's and that's similar to, for example, how Stepin currently works, which is this um, um, walk walk to earn uh, product on Solana currently that has yeah. had a um, lot of traction. And uh, naturally, this 
this kind of staking reward lends itself to quite good uh, user growth because a lot of these users come in for the promise of future returns. Right. And then you're just kind of prolonging that process by promising better and better future returns for the longer time you you, you lock up your tokens and, and then they're not. But obviously, if someone starts cashing out, then it's and, and, and the user growth starts stagnating, then it's gonna then it starts being an issue also, also for, for these products. So, so uh, it's almost like um, if a product implements this kind of a token reward uh, program or, or system for the users, uh, and that kind of exponential user, it kickstarts the exponential user growth because people are in it for for kind of the rewards. Uh, then that's almost the time you have to create valuable sinks in the product if you right. don't have those because um, all of these sinks of of locking up your tokens yet again for bigger rewards um, wouldn't be considered as real sinks because they aren't really providing any value. Uh, there's no value that the user is paying for. Uh, and um, yeah, now deviating a bit from the from the original question, but right. but that's mainly probably the kind of program you're referring to. to yes, yeah, so, so so two two interesting points there. One is that um, the way I'm even talking about staking staking rewards and the way I see it a lot in, in public is not uh, what you're, is not true staking as it's intended where uh, staking is part of running the network. You, you put up collateral for the right to run the network and validate transactions. And if you fail to do your duty properly, you're penalized, right? Uh, mostly it's just uh, presented to, to users as, as a lockup protocol with, with rewards um, and that it has a valid use case for marketing. Right, you can look at it as a marketing cost to to kickstart your growth, but um, it can uh, be a double-edged sword in in that way. Um, something that's really interesting, you know, so like, com to UX, uh, com uh, com to us is a uh, uh, developer that I have a lot of respect for. Uh, they make games and similar to the ones I've done, and they've done really great job with with a lot of mid core RPGs. Uh, they just released uh, Chromatic Souls AFK Arena. I I have it on my uh, phone right now. I've been playing it. The art's beautiful, and I know vaguely that it's tied in that it is a blockchain game. Although because it's I'm playing on the phone, I haven't everything about it being part of the blockchain. Uh, or having blockchain is is uh, walled off, and I haven't yet discovered it outside of the app. But I I know that um, they're not alone in in being a developer who was uh, building on this Terra ecosystem. And so, like, what what happens now? What happens if you're one of these developers um, in Play's uh, uh, portfolio? And they were building on some chain, and the chain basically collapses. What what options do they have now? Yeah, um, I, I think in general we always or the, the deals that we look for or uh, companies we're interested in, like we always say we want them to build on credibly neutral layer ones, so robust layer ones that we think have proven themselves over time and are robust to semi-robust. So Ethereum, obviously, uh, some of uh, the ones around that, Polygon, Avalanche is coming into that, Solana to, to a degree. 
Um, so I think that's kind of the we're, we're looking for the main chains to uh, in terms of companies that we invest in. When it comes to Terra more specifically and the companies building or, ha or who have built on that, uh, I guess they have the option to migrate to, to Cosmos um, because that's the same underlying technology that they can actually go on. Um, but I think everybody's kind of waiting for it, how it's playing out, because we don't know yet. There's all kinds of proposals. Should we fork the chain? Should we do, should we restart it? It's actually up and running now. I believe that uh, mm -hmm. the delegation is, is kind of frozen, so you can't change the, the validators at the moment, but the chain is up and, up and running. So are we going to have a, a, a new start of this chain? Is going to be a different chain? I think people are kind of waiting and, and seeing what's going to happen. Um, but then, yeah, they, I think they'll have to migrate. And over time, people will, I think, converge on just the proven and, and solid layer ones. Yeah. Mm. And clearly, I think what, what we've seen, uh, and also from our chats with the alternative layer ones and layer twos, is that, that sort of now, obviously, they're seeing an opportunity now to be quick in onboarding. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of these are, are trying to poach poach developers that previously were building on on, on Terra or, or were looking yeah. to build on Terra to, to work on their chains as well. I mean, just if you uh, uh, compared the feature depth and art of Chromatic Souls to a lot of um, what's currently playable in in the general blockchain ecosystem, most most games aren't even playable. Like. If I ran one of those uh, networks, I would love to have this game at such a high quality on it, and I'd be trying to figure out how to basically vampire strike <laughs> and and get them over uh, get them over to my network. Um, so when when developers come to you guys, I know that Play is a is an early uh, stage fund. Um, have developers generally chosen a chain for their project or projects? Is that something you help them with? Like, how do you, it seems like a really critical choice for a game company to make and actually quite, um, quite frightening if you're thinking about it, like literally this week, uh, when you're like, when you're seeing the, uh, the possibilities of, of what can happen. Um, so how, you know, what, what are, uh, what stage of the decision-making are, are game companies coming to you with and, and how do you help them with that decision? So I think at varying levels, some have, some already have an idea of what they're going to build on. Some haven't really mm -hmm. given it much thought. Obviously, if you're, if you're coming with a free-to-play background and a, and a limited understanding in crypto, but you know how to make games, then it's probably not, not as straightforward as, as a lot of these kind of value propositions look very similar. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, as Kendrick said, we we don't have like a clear favorite that hey, you should you should be building on this one. I think it comes right. a lot down to 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 the intricacies of the the companies themselves and the games uh, that they're looking to build. Uh, and um, at the end of the day, I think there are only, there's only a couple of key things you wanna you want to be maximizing for right now. And that's obviously that it's, it's something that is as pr proven to be as secure as possible. Uh, Ethereum is likely going to be difficult due to the current issues in, in scalability, but looking at, at some of the adjacent ones, the other ones we mentioned, obviously Polygon as it's EVM compatible, 
uh, Avalanche being uh, being a newcomer, Solana also being one, but again a bit more secluded due to running on a on a different on a different language. Um, but I think I think we need to also operate with the assumption that the end user probably is not going to care too much right. uh, in in the next few years when hopefully a lot of um, the comp- complexity will be abstracted uh, through mm-hmm. better wallet design, hosted wallets for people who really don't care about kind of self-custody and, and managing their own wallet, kind of ob- obfuscating that in the background and having these having these games feel like any other free-to-play free game, basically, with the same kind of uh, frictionless design as you would experience in, in anything else right now. But, but um, obviously, it takes a bit of time to... For, and from from very very different companies to get to that point. So currently, currently security definitely being one that is, and, and it's something that's not going to shut down. That it's going to keep up running. Similarly to how you you wouldn't want AWS to immediately just shut down, yeah. uh, and then would have to think about migrating somewhere else. Uh, now, obviously, some of these some of these organizations and foundations behind these solutions are starting to get quite big. Uh, not only from a support perspective, not only come kind of from personnel support perspective in terms of integration, but also from a financial standpoint. Uh, and I think it's also now more about kind of where do you find that you'll have a mutually beneficial partnership that you'll get both engineering support, biz dev support. Is there funding that could be leveraged uh, for, from some of these organizations? Uh, and uh, not so much maybe about those tinier details. Uh, and then it's, I, 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 and I mean, it, it's a talent question as well. So mm-hmm. if we're working with a team that already has in-house Rust talent, uh, then probably the low, low threshold solution there is to go for Solana as it's based on Rust. But if it's a team that doesn't have Rust developer talent, uh, and even if they don't, obviously most don't have Solidity developer talent, uh, I think what we've seen in our portfolio is, is that instead of trying to go out there and recruit those really expensive experienced solidity developers because um they're either they're either retired from their ethereum gains or <laughs> then they're just uh, uh just have very very high salaries because yeah. um probably an experienced solidity developer is, is probably one of the most hot commodities uh on the planet right now so so what we've seen is is having backend developers that that have an interest in kind of getting around the ropes of solidity because at the end of the day the contracts that these studios need for for their nfts and uh and and the tokens in the in, in the game are, aren't aren't too complex and and we usually seen the teams trying to build that knowledge in-house uh, and and then if they build on polygon for example they get to piggyback on everything that is being developed on ethereum due to them being compatible with each other and obviously there's still a lot of r d uh focused on on ethereum uh, Lots of um, organizations focused on, on grant programs for developing tools for Ethereum development, uh, different kind of developer frameworks for that. So, so I think I think that's also kind of a part of the whole composability aspect. That uh, that sort of it's an easier time to deploy something on Polygon when it's been developed on Ethereum. But if if, if we're looking to have those additions on Solana as well, then it's probably a, a longer way to go uh, in that sense. So no kind of clear question, but I think we're, we just, what we try to do with the developers, we try to, now without this being too much of a sales pitch, trying to kind of highlight the questions you, you want to be asking yourself before, before making these choices. 
but luckily you can go quite far into game development before actually having to choose right. uh, choose these things or i mean dependent on kind of what level of of of, of on-chain elements you want to have in the game yeah. yeah that's an interesting point about the um experience level on the team you know i i liken this period of time very frequently to the explosion of facebook games and at the time like it was a giant talent war for flash developers and people who were experienced in AS3 and there were so few of them and the sal- you know, like recruiting them seemed impossible and salaries were super high. And at Electronic Arts, I remember we actually had just as much luck taking experienced, knowledgeable developers who were interested in like learning ActionScript 3 wasn't, it wasn't, uh, painless but it wasn't that hard um and it was actually a lot simpler than um trying to fight over the same four people whose experience in game development was like using flash to build slot machine games you know it was a very weird time um and so from a talent war perspective i i feel like um find someone who can code and and is interested in learning and and work with them to to learn the new thing um, and don't fight over, as you said, the the same small pool of people who are either rich or ex- extremely expensive. Um, yeah, find someone who looks at Solidity like they look at C plus plus. Yeah. Um, what what do you do? You think this uh, incident impacts the future of stable coins? I mean. If anything, uh, a stable coin, as far as I can tell, it being called a stable coin, that's just a marketing spin, right? It's just intention. There's nothing that uh, can magically force a token to stay exactly on the value of a U.S. dollar. Um, does this shake your, you know, as investors, how do you think about the future of stable coins? Like, is it going to be a thing? Are we going to witness the collapse of more of these stable coins in the future? Or does it serve a, a really critical uh, role uh, in, in the blockchain ecosystem? I, I think, unfortunately, it's probably given a lot of ammo to the regulators to step in. Mm-hmm. And to step in maybe a little bit early when the technology is still so so nascent. Um, obviously, they, they've been eyeing this industry for a long time, right? Because yeah. they were experimenting with monetary assets and uh, potentially even uh, assets that are a threat to the kind of national banking system uh, of several several nations. I mean, uh, Bitcoin is being adopted as legal tender in three countries now, you know. There's more more to come probably. So, uh, but yeah, this obviously invites regulation, and I don't think that's bad uh, necessarily if it's done in a thoughtful way. Because yeah, like if you look at USDC, that's pretty much a regulated stablecoin out of the US that is one to one backed with mm-hmm. a dollar in the bank. So that ju- should just be one dollar straight up, um, as a, as again, except for you know. The U.S. government freezing those assets for sanctions reasons, but that's no different from your bank account. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think it will invite more regu- regulatory scrutiny. And uh, the big problem I think we've seen over the years with multiple regulators around the world is that they just do not understand the technology right. um, at its core. And because of that, they make bad regulation. And that's more of a threat than anything else, I think. 
is bad regulation. So I'm I'm very um, optimistic on countries who get this right, do it thoughtfully and get it right, uh, because that's where a lot of talent will flock. Um, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, Europe is not doing a great job here. They're trying to pass all kinds of... Uh, I mean, Europe does what Europe does, which is make rules mm -hmm. and chase, chase all the talent out to, to other places. And uh, US is a bit messy, but I think they'll get it right in the end. Um, so we'll, we'll see. There's a lot of regulatory arbitrage going on at, at the same time. But yeah, of course, this invites the regulators yeah. to, to come and take, take a look in our, uh, in our corner. Any, um, I, I know we're kind of out of time, any closing words to game developers in the audience? If you were someone who was thinking of red pilling or thinking of making the switch to blockchain and, and this uh, incident might have scared you away, what would you say uh, to game developers about your belief in the future of uh, blockchain technology for gaming? Do you have an inspirational quote there ready, Anton? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I think the same thing that applies for investing, do your own research and, and, and uh, try to try to map out the risks and, and, and don't go too fast. I, I would like to give a lot more sort of actionable advice on this, but the fact is that the, the industry is still young. I mean, in a matter of sort of quite a uh, sh short span of time, we've seen to obviously one uh, that we felt at the time was quite big with uh, with with the uh, the attack on the Ronin bridge, mm -hmm. uh, but then again, dollar wise, we're talking about tens of billions of value that was evaporated uh, here during uh, during the Luna one. So so obviously keeping in mind that it's a it's a very nascent industry, um, and I don't mean to say that that it's okay that it's okay for this stuff to happen. Uh, I, I think I think um, obviously it should be sure. avoided avoided at all costs. But when it comes to it comes to developers choosing choosing what to build on, uh, there's some of these have already a, a, a better kind of um, and more solid history behind them. So so just trying to trying yeah, to keep I, that in mind I, when I, doing I, their own research. I'd say for for anyone looking to enter, this is just a, a mega trend. Like this is the opportunity of a generation. Yep. Uh, to really get ahead and do something different and be innovative again. Uh, this is as big, if not bigger than the internet itself. Get involved. Uh, it's a blue ocean, like come up with your own things, experiment, uh, start companies, start protocols. Um, it's just, yeah, you're going to be, you're going to be golden for the next 20 years. Uh, this is the, I think the only tech opportunity in the world for the next 10 years where you really have a great opportunity to innovate whereas the internet has been become pretty uh, pretty siloed and, and stagnant um, and there's multiple ways to make money but there's also multiple ways here to make the world a much better place uh, and that's where some of these systems are being developed and it's almost like little nation states the individual networks and the philosophies behind them right like bitcoin has a very strong type of libertarian bent. Uh, Ethereum is much more kind of liberal, inclusive type of uh, place. And yeah, find find your gang and, and hook into that ecosystem and build great stuff. I think you'll you'll do you'll do very well. All right. Well with that, uh, we will wrap it up. Thank you in the audience for listening. Thanks to our sponsor and uh, Kenrick, thank you for coming on 
and uh, and uh, guesting for the first time. I hope we'll have you back again in the future. Thanks, Ethan. Pleasure. All right. Bye, friends.